0: If you learn anything when presenting, it's always have backups. So while that's getting started, while I plan to cover 19th century economics as well as the Kirtland blank this morning um, in my presentation, I also want to focus on the, the spiritual crisis um, that Kirtland experienced in 1837 and the ways that I hope that we can learn from the experience of the Kirtland saints for our current moment of kind of spiritual crisis as a church, and the faith crises that we see people kind of going through um, at this time. Looks like we've got the PowerPoint, great. The crisis within the Mormon community of Kirtland has been inseparably connected to the founding and subsequent failure of the church's Kirtland Bank. However, there is too often a direct causal connection assumed between the bank and the 1837 crisis. The focus of my presentation today is to demonstrate the complexity of this period of history, contextualize both the bank and the crisis, and address several prevailing assumptions about each. Although most Kirtland narratives place the bank amid the financial devastation of 1837, the Kirtland Safety Society Bank was organized in November of 1836. As such, understanding developments in Kirtland in 1836 is key. In 1836, Kirtland was a growing and thriving community, enjoying the same sense of economic success experienced throughout the United States. The Kirtland Temple, which the Latter-day Saints had sacrificed and worked for years to complete, was dedicated at the end of March and accompanied by profound Pentecostal experiences. With the dedication of the temple, Joseph expanded his aim from building a house of the Lord to building up Kirtland as a city and stake of Zion. He encouraged church members to join him in this endeavor and to invest in their community. Despite this enthusiasm, church leaders faced difficult financial realities. Although church members had sacrificed a great deal for the temple, much of the construction costs were borne by the church, namely the temple building committee, resulting in thousands of dollars of debt. Joseph Smith and other church leaders were aware of, and concerned by, the substantial debts amassed in building the temple, but this was not the crippling debt it has sometimes been made out to be. Church leaders were worried they were not desperate. Another significant concern facing Joseph Smith and church leaders in the summer of 1836 was the forced removal of the Latter-day Saints living in Clay County. As tensions increased between the growing Latter-day Saint population in Clay County, Missouri, And their neighbors, Missouri church leaders acquiesced to the demands of the Clay County citizens and agreed to leave rather than face the mob violence they had experienced in Jackson County. With concerns about the Missouri Saints, the redemption of Zion, and financing church growth on his mind, Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Oliver Cowdery left Kirtland for a trip to the eastern United States in late July. While in Salem, Massachusetts, Joseph received a revelation on August 6, 1836, now canonized in the LDS version of the Doctrine and Covenants as D&C Section 111. This revelation offers specific reassurances that Zion would be redeemed, and that the church would be able to repay its debt. When Joseph and his companions returned to Kirtland in mid-September, they began making plans for several business ventures. Joseph, in partnership with Sidney Rigdon and possibly Oliver Cowdery, started a store in Chester, Ohio. Joseph also bought a significant amount of land in the Kirtland area, over 400 acres. Some of this land was likely intended for use by newly arrived church members, but a portion also likely served as security for the other significant business venture that Joseph Smith and other Latter-day Saints started in the fall of 1836, a bank. The initial plans for the bank came together in October, and on November 2nd, stockholders approved the the bank's constitution, and elected Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith as the bank's officers. The fact that the society began in 1836 is sometimes overlooked in broad generalizations about Kirtland, but this context is critical to understanding the impetus for the bank. As I mentioned earlier, 1836 was a year of growth and prosperity in Kirtland and the United States more generally. This period of prosperity led thousands of individuals to take financial risks, to speculate in land, cotton, or other markets, and to overextend their credit under the assumption that such prosperity would continue and they would be able to repay what they had borrowed. While we often look back with hindsight and condemn the Kirtland Safety Society Bank as a failure from its creation, the feeling among the saints in 1836 was not impending failure, but that of ambition and an assumption of continuing prosperity. Additionally, a bank made sense for for a growing community like Kirtland. Smaller frontier banks established by local members of the community were a common feature in 19th century America. Banks allowed illiquid assets like land, the only real asset the Saints had, to be used as collateral for loans, providing money the church and its members needed to buy land, build homes, and aid church members in Missouri. There is the assumption that the bank was created in a desperate attempt to pay the debts of the church. While hoped-for revenue from the bank was surely intended to aid the church and pay off church debts, there is a tendency to overemphasize the debts of the Kirtland period, as if this was the only time Joseph Smith or the church was in debt. The money owed for the Kirtland temple was significant, and Joseph struggled to pay off these debts for the rest of his life, but what we should keep in mind is that neither Joseph Smith nor the church were ever financially stable. Debt was a reality, not only of trying to build communities with little resources, but also the difficult financial circumstances the Latter-day Saints faced in being driven from one community to the next, and trying to aid impoverished members and new converts. We should also keep in mind that Joseph's personal finances were so intermeshed with church finances that there is often no clear separation between the two, and no accounting for his personal debts and assets and those of the church. The Kirtland Safety Society Bank, later called a banking company, was a church-run bank that was not exclusive to church members. While most stockholders were members of the church, a small number of residents in the area of Northeastern Ohio were also involved in the bank. Although organized in the fall of 1836, the Safety Society did not begin operating in office until early January 1837, after the institution had been restructured and was briefly given the cumbersome name of Kirtland Safety Society Anti-Banking Company. Unable to acquire a charter and official incorporation from the Ohio State Legislature, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and other stockholders involved in the bank resolved in January 1837 to continue to function as a bank without legislative approval. This was a common, extra-legal workaround used by many societies and unincorporated banks in Ohio and was rarely regulated or prosecuted against. Unfortunately, the small-scale bank that the Kirtland Safety Society was has no modern parallels, and is an oddity of early community banking. There are no records to suggest it was a deposit bank, meaning that the Kirtland Safety Society issued loans and exchanged its notes with the notes of other banks, but did not hold money for any individuals. The funds for the bank came from deposit came not from deposits, but from stockholders' investments in the bank. The Kirtland Safety Society was an ambitious endeavor, and relatively short-lived. Closing by August 1837, the reasons it failed are many and complex, but no single factor caused the institution to fail. The lack of a charter and unclear financial backing, coupled with religious prejudice, led many to be skeptical of the bank's credibility and solvency. Externally, the bank endured intense opposition from the press and from anti-Mormons in Northeastern Ohio. Internally, only a little over 200 individuals invested in the bank as stockholders, even though the Mormon population in Kirtland was around 1800 in 1837. The financial structure of the bank itself was also extremely problematic. The initial capital stock or required funding to operate for the bank was, was set impossibly high, At four million dollars. This was significantly higher than other frontier community banks whose capital stock averaged from 100 to 300,000. Most frontier banks relied on eastern investors to raise sufficient capital and with the limited resources available in Kirtland and no wealthy investors in sight, such an amount was out of reach for the Kirtland Saints. Related to this structural problem was the financing for the bank. Funding was provided primarily by stockholders who purchased stock by subscription and then were required to pay for their stock and installment payments. Many of those who subscribed for stock did not even pay the first installment payment they owed, and those individuals that did pay the first installment usually did not make any additional payments. When this funding fell short, Joseph supplemented it with short-term loans from other Ohio banks. Later, in the course of the the bank's operation, funding was also hampered by mismanagement. Although not well documented, Warren Parrish was accused of embezzling and counterfeiting. Ultimately, the bank failed because of the economic upheaval created by the nationwide financial panic, called the Panic of 1837, which resulted in banks across the nation failing, land values falling, and debts being called in. The Panic of 1837 caused an economic decline that would lead to years of economic depression in the United States. This panic and resulting depression were catastrophic and are analogous to the Great Depression of the 20th century. It was this financial panic that devastated the Kirtland economy and not the failure of the bank. While many in Kirtland experienced some financial loss as a result of the bank's failure, the community's economy and individual church members' finances were far more drastically affected by plummeting land values. Although many detractors, then and now, have held Joseph Smith personally responsible for the failure of the Kirtland Safety Society and downturn of the Kirtland economy, these were complex events for which Joseph was not individually responsible. The economic downturn that followed the financial panic in 1837 dramatically affected the Latter-day Saints in Kirtland. Warren Cowdery, who would distance himself from the church by the end of 1837, reflected in a July 1830 newspaper editorial that it would, have, would not have been possible for such a financial calam- calamity not to have affected the Kirtland Saints. Yet, when we discuss Kirtland and the crisis of 1837, we overlook the financial realities of, of the Kirtland community and omit the fact that their livelihoods, homes, and their ability to feed their families were at stake. Lessons on this topic simplify these 19th century church members' doubts and dis- disaffection as simple apostasy with no explanation of their concerns, or of the gravity of the choices they faced. In addition to this financial devastation, a smallpox epidemic raged in Kirtland through June and July 1837, and claimed the lives of several children. Writing to Elias Smith, his family reported that, quote, it is a very sickly time here, with children, and quite a number of deaths have taken place within a a few weeks past. Yesterday, there were two funerals attended at once in the meeting house, both children, and there is quite a number sick now. End quote. Writing in late July 1837, John Smith reported that, quote, The smallpox has subsided, but the destroyer is yet among us in various forms. I have spent much of my time for a few days past in visiting the sick. End quote. Joseph himself was gravely ill at this time, although his illness was not identified, and he could barely sign the recommendation given to Heber C. Kimball as he set out on the church's first mission to England. Dissenters made the most of Joseph's illness, preaching their frustrations to the church. Mary Fielding, also writing in June 1837, of a Sunday worship service where several disaffected members spoke, including Apostle Parley P. Pratt, noted that, quote, the large congregation of saints and sinners had listened with great attention, some pleased, but many greatly displeased, end quote. Although the bank did not on its own bring financial ruin, it does appear to have acted as a catalyst for doubts and disaffection from the church and from Joseph Smith. Apostles Parley P. Pratt and John F. Boynton directed their anger and sense of betrayal specifically at the bank. Pratt faced the threat of losing his land and home because of economic difficulties and lashed out at Joseph Smith in a May 1837 letter accusing him of speculation and lying. Boynton argued that he had lost his testimony of Joseph Smith as a prophet because the bank which he believed had been founded by revelation had failed. The fault here is less the bank and more doubts about Joseph Smith's prophecy and leadership of the church. Many of the members who became dissenters in the summer of 1837 felt that they had been misled or even betrayed. Joseph Smith had promised them financial success if they would invest their resources and help build the city of Kirtland. In April 1837, he had described Kirtland as a grand and expansive city that would be a center of commerce where, quote, the kings of the earth would come to behold the glory thereof, end quote. However, as a result of the Panic of 1837, the Saints were left with failed businesses, unsellable land, and an inability to provide for their families. The core of the dissenters' betrayal was not solely the bank, but a man that they believed to be a prophet had not warned them of impending financial danger, and that the church's banking company had brought financial loss, not success. This was a financial failure, but it was also a failed prophecy of prosperity. And for some, this called to mind earlier failures and frustrations, such as those experienced by the camp of Israel, or Zion's camp, in 1834. Another part of this perceived failure was Joseph Smith's failure as a temporal leader, as well as a prophet. Some dissenters felt he had overreached by directing the saints in temporal matters. Joseph Coe opposed the prophet's involvement in and control over temporal matters, arguing that it went beyond the purview of his spiritual leadership, and there were others who were better qualified to direct such matters. Oliver Cowdery argued that Joseph should not be able to dictate what he did with the land he owned. Warren Cowdery, Oliver's brother, called Smith a tyrant. Many dissenters seemed to chafe under the idea of Joseph Smith leading in both spiritual and temporal matters, as well as the degree of control he exercised over the church and its members. Still, others reacted out of wounded pride, feeling that they were not given the positions and church leadership they deserved. Facing financial devastation and individual doubts, for many saints, the prophet had not lived up to their expectations. Expectations which seemed to have required perfection and possibly omniscience of a prophet of God. With the reality of Joseph Smith's imperfection and the possibility that not every church venture would succeed, several stumbled in their faith. Some, like Boyden, said that they had lost their faith entirely. A few, like Warren Parrish, became fierce opponents, actively working to discredit and malign Joseph Smith. Others were able to reconcile the, the apparent imperfections and chose to, to continue to follow Joseph Smith. And on this spectrum of reactions, many church members probably fell in the space in between complete acceptance or rejection. How far the dissent existed beyond the few individuals named in contemporary records is difficult to capture. Heber C. Kimball, who had left Kirtland on a mission to England in July of 1837, would hyperbolically suggest that Joseph Smith at this time did not have a single supporter in all of Kirtland. Similarly, in an 1837 letter to her husband, Phoebe Woodruff warned that she'd been told that thousands shared the sentiments of the dissenters. Writing in January 1838, Vliet Kimball felt that some who had been persuaded to join the excommunicated dissenters would have a change of heart and soon return to the Latter-day Saints, and she expressed her own and others' loyalty to the prophet. It is clear that the doubts and dissatisfaction expressed by the Apostles and other church leaders were also experienced by church members more broadly, but the extent of these feelings among the Kirtland Saints is impossible to accurately measure with our current records. However, the sense of betrayal cut multiple ways. While the dissenters had legitimate reasons for feeling betrayed, so too did Joseph Smith. He had worked to build a place of safety and strength for the saints, and he was met with disunity, financial failure, and close friends denouncing him as a false prophet. Joseph took four lengthy trips in 1837, in February, April, August, and October, and with each trip, dissent escalated during his absence. Dissension, division, and disunity were a constant reality for the Kirtland community throughout 1837 and into 1838. There were moments when opposition peaked and others when it seemed to quell for a time, but it never entirely dissipated. This tension took a heavy emotional toll on Joseph Smith and the entire church. The religious community that had been united in completing and dedicating a temple in March of 1836 was deeply divided by January 1838. At its core, The Kirtland crisis of 1837 was what we might term today a faith crisis. Decades later, in Utah, Joseph Joseph Young, in reflecting on the bank, would call it a stumbling block for the Saints, a point at which they had to decide if they believed that Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet, and whether they could follow a prophet who would not always succeed, who would make mistakes, and who might require financial loss, failure, and suffering in order to, to achieve the requirements of God. In our current climate of uncertainty, as many members and former members struggle with their own personal crises of faith, there is much we can learn from the way the Kirtland Saints reacted to the doubt and division in their community. Several reacted with compassion and understanding. Several reacted with compassion and understanding, recognizing the frustration and hurt experienced by those doubting or opposing Joseph Smith. In a January 1838 letter, the late Kimball conveyed her distress about the excommunicated dissenters. Quote, Now after all that I have said about this dissenting party, there is some of them that I love and have great feeling and pity for them. I know they have been tried to the very quick, and what grieves me the most of all is that many things which they tell, I have no doubt, but what are too true. Still, I do not think they are justifiable in the course they have taken." In her correspondence, Mary Fielding emphasized her desire for unity and peace, a restoration of their divided community. Each of these women recognized the emotional toll this division had on the community, writing about their own anxiety and the concerns of leaders, trying to encourage the saints to be more humble. In one letter, Mary related a sermon by Hir- Hiram Smith, where he exhorted the saints to be more Christlike. and quote, asked us if we did not then feel as humble as little children. He assured us that he for one did, and observed, I think my heart is soft, and I now feel as a little child." End quote. She recounts that at this point, quote, he was then affected to tears and could not proceed, but had to sit down for a short time to give vent to his emotions, after which he again arose and begged the congregation to excuse his weakness and before he concluded, he seemed to be filled, filled with the spirit and power of God," End quote. Although Joseph would later reflect bitterly on the actions of the 1837 dissenters, in the summer of 1837, he appears to have been patient, not reactionary, toward those who opposed him. The most outspoken dissenters came forward in late May and early June, but it was not until September that a church conference was called and dissenters were re- removed from their positions in church leadership. While this delay may have been partially the result of Joseph's own illness in June and July, and a summer trip to Canada in August 1837, it also gave the dissenters time to consider their position, to meet with him and express their concerns. Even in September, no dissenting individuals were excommunicated. With the mediation of Thomas B. Marsh, most of the dissenting apostles had compromised and agreed to once again follow Joseph Smith. At this news, Blake Kimball rejoiced and wrote that she thought in that moment she could, quote, realize some of the feelings of the prodigal when his rebellious son returned home, end quote. Part of this reconciliation appears to have been Joseph himself recognizing his own shortcomings. A recently discovered letter written by Eliza Ann Carter in 1837 suggests that just like the dissenting Apostles were required to give public confessions before the Saints, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon also publicly confessed that they had erred in this difficult time. Of course, for many of the dissenters, their reconciliation turned out to be temporary, and by December, the dissenters' intensity and persistence resulted in the Kirtland High Council excommunicating 28 of the leaders. Just as as the dissenters had been unable to let go of their grievances, So, too, the reactions of those who stayed in the church were imperfect. John Smith noted in January 1838 that the church was better off for having removed the dissenters, writing that the church had, quote, taken a mighty pruning and we think she will rise in the greatness of her strength, end quote. Unfortunately, tensions escalated to threats of violence. Hepzibah Richards wrote her brother, Willard Richards, that their cousin Brigham Young had been forced to leave Kirtland because the dissenters were threatening his life and that the lives of the First Presidency were threatened by the dissenters as well. The evening of January 15, 1838, the church's recently auctioned printing office was destroyed by arson. Deep fissures existed between excommunicated dissenters and the Latter-day Saints, and Kirtland continued to be a divided community for years after the majority of Latter-day Saints had relocated, first to Missouri and later to Nauvoo and Iowa. The Kirtland crisis of 1837 was complex and emotional. Too often this period is simplified, written off as a moment of confusion and depicted by darkness. One of the films at the LDS Kirtland Visitor Center summarizes the entirety of this time of temporal and spiritual crisis with a phrase along the lines of, and then things got hard. Times were indeed hard. The Kirtland economy was devastated, the Mormon community was in turmoil, but this complexity adds depth and gravity to a misunderstood time period. Although establishing a bank may seem like an odd or reckless choice to us, it made sense for the period and for the Kirtland community. The situation that led to the bank's failure was complicated. Joseph Smith was neither solely to blame nor entirely innocent in its demise. The economic conditions in 1837 made it impossible for the bank to continue, but there were inherent problems and significant opposition from its founding. The same climate of economic disaster led some Latter-day Saints to reassess their expectations of Joseph Smith as a prophet and question his leadership and temporal decisions. While many were concerned with finances, the reasons for their opposition to Smith were distinct and personal, and for some, represented long-standing concerns. Some dissenters, like Parley and Orson Pratt, relented and were willing to once again follow Joseph. Others distanced themselves from the church, either voluntarily or through excommunication but despite their momentary anger and bitterness, several former members maintained or later revived friendships with Latter-day Saints. These relationships would lead them to reconnect with the church in Nauvoo, not out of a desire to rejoin the faith, but out of friendship that transcended religious differences and past disagreements. Thank you. I also want to add that I'm told that the Church Historians Press, um, which publishes our Joseph Smith Papers documents, has a booth in the back, and that they are uh, currently running a drawing where you can get free cop- a free copy of Documents Volume 5, which is the volume uh, that this research was an outgrowth of, and focuses on the Kirtland Temple dedication and Kirtland Bank. some questions. I think there's a couple more out there. If there's a couple more questions, raise your hand and I'll come to Alright, this first question is, who accepted the society's notes, and for what kind of, kind of payments? Um, the notes weren't circulated as tender the way we use cash today, correct? So, the way that the notes circulated, they were either put into circulation um, through loans that were received, or um, through exchanging notes, or hard specie, uh, coin, that you would then give to the bank in exchange for the notes. Um, And these did circulate as a form of currency, because at this time, the United States government didn't have a federal currency, um, at least a a printed currency. And so they are circulating within the community as a form of of currency, um, but they aren't widely accepted. Um, We know that a few merchants are trading in them, but um, there's an account by Carolyn Crosby where she uh, says that her husband is trying to uh, help uh, build a home for Joseph Smith and he's paid in these notes and they can't find anyone who will accept them or will give them food in exchange for the notes. Um, They also depreciate quite quickly um, and by the summer months are worth um, like 20 cents on a dollar. So they're worth very, very little over the course of the society's existence. Where more? This one is uh, a good question. What do you make of the charge that Joseph filled money boxes with sand, iron, stone, and um, other combustibles? This is a common uh, trope against uh, wildcat banks. There is no proof that uh, Joseph ever did this. In fact, we're not even sure um, whether they would have had the room that's often in these accounts, a basement room that would have barrels full of of this so-called um, fake species with just a littering of, of coins on top. Um, there's no uh, proof of that happening um, for the Kirtland Bank, and this is also a story um, that's used against several other um, Banks that are that have questioned credibility. Um, so it's a common story. It's a common trope, and there's no clear tie that this happened in Kurland. This is a good question about land prices. So essentially, in 1836, there is um, dramatic inflation in land values, and essentially you you see a bubble being created in the economy um, and this bubble essentially bursts with the Panic of 1837. And so land that had been at an inflated value of thousands of dollars now would barely sell. And we have several accounts by uh, Saints in the 18, kind of 37, 38 period, um, where they're talking about how they can't even sell um, their land in their hopes to travel to Missouri. Um, There's quite a lot of saints who are willing to barter. Um, John Smith, writing to George Albert Smith, um, says, if you can find someone who will take our land for wagons and livestock, we'll do it. Um, So there's a real desperation when it comes to land. There is a great question asking about whether women were involved in the descent, um, and unfortunately, we have less records uh, by and about women um, in this period, so it's hard to say for sure. Uh, but Phoebe Woodruff, who is learning about the Kirtland descent um, second, maybe even third hand, she's in Maine um, while Wilford Woodruff is uh, on a mission to the Fox Islands. She's staying with family in Maine and she's getting information from Kirtland, and in this letter, and only this letter, um, she claims that the wives of the dissenters were also excommunicated and dissenters themselves. So Martin Harris, well actually Martin Harris is a bad example because he removed from his wife. Um, so Joseph Coe and wife, uh, Warren Parrish and wife, and so she's kind of lumping these couples together as dissenters and it's impossible for us to tell if they're kind of guilty by association, or whether they too kind of genuinely felt um, these concerns that their husbands felt, but great question. This is a great question about um, whether the failure of the bank contributed to Joseph's bankruptcy filing. It did not, actually. Um, Ohio did not require that Joseph, as an officer of the bank, redeem notes after the bank had failed. Even though many individuals would kind of demand this of the saints, um, when the Kirtland camp is moving uh, as a a group from Kirtland to Missouri, um, they pass through several communities where people kind of angrily attack the church and demand that their Kirtland safety Society notes are redeemed for specie. Um, but this was not a legal requirement in the state of Ohio. What did dramatically affect Joseph's bankruptcy filings actually are the debts of the Kirtland Temple. Um, These debts were turned in large part to mercantile debts um, that the Temple Building Committee, which had formed a mercantile association called Cahoon Carter & Co. um, were involved in, and these debts appear on Joseph's bankruptcy filings. So, we can tell that even by 42, there was little progress on kind of alleviating these debts. Here's another question um, that asks, what similarities um, we might find between the current faith crisis in the church and the Kirtland experience. Um, And I think we can find kind of similar questions being asked, sorry. Um, We can find similar questions being asked in terms of following uh, counsel that one might not agree with, and or having disagreements with church leaders. Um, But theirs was fundamentally kind of financially and economically driven. I think that our current faith crisis, um, at least in part, is very kind of social and culturally driven. So the the kind of motivations behind them are slightly different, but ultimately these Kirtland Saints are asking themselves what their expectations of prophets and prophecy are, what their requirements for following a prophet will be, and I think we face kind of similar questions Um, today as we get prophetic counsel um, and other counsel that we may or may not find ourselves in 100% agreement with. And like that, the Kirtland Saints also had issues that that they didn't entirely agree with Joseph Smith on. And I think that that's when we'll conclude. Thank you.